0: Heavenly Father, you, you are our strength, you give us strength, you are our wisdom, and you give us wisdom. Father, the word that you have for us today is challenging, it is personal, it is relevant, it is important, and it is sensitive. Father, would you give me the grace that I need to speak and preach from the heart to the heart? In Jesus' name, I beg you. Amen. 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 You may be seated. Thank you, worship team. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, good morning, Trinity. My name is David. I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here. A special welcome to anybody joining us for the first time. For anybody else, it's good to see you. Amen. 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 Well, as I prayed, um, I have a lot to go through today, and it is relevant, it is important, it is sensitive. Um, The first couple pages of this uh, I am going to go through quickly. Uh, It is a fundamental and vital review of what we've been studying in this book of Ephesians. And it sets the table for everything that comes after it. I will do my best, I will try to slow the pace at which I speak, if you promise me to increase the rate at which you hear. (laughs) So we're in this together. But we continue today our study through Paul's letter to the Christians in Ephesus, and we find ourselves today in chapter 5. Today, maybe more than at any point so far in this series, we must remember that chapters and verses were added to Scripture more than a thousand years after it was written. So while we are accustomed to chapters ending one thought and beginning another, the Apostle Paul who wrote this had no such intention he wrote this letter as one stream of consciousness. Now, if I remove the chapters and verses, and you studied this letter, you would no doubt be struck by the main transition Paul makes halfway through. The letter was separated into six chapters in almost dead center of the letter. At the end of chapter 3, Paul transitions from relentlessly reinforcing who the Ephesians are in Christ to how they are to live for Christ. We've said it before and it bears repeating. He moves from Christian being to Christian doing. Identity leading to behavior. He doesn't tell them what to do in order to then become. No, they were made new in Christ. Now here is how to live that out. Why does Paul do that with such intentionality? And why do we make such a big deal about being before doing, identity before behavior. His Christian brothers and sisters in Ephesus were immersed in a culture full of pride and gossip and slander and greed, idolatry, drunkenness, bitterness, rage, sexual promiscuity. Does any of that sound familiar? The temple to the god Artemis was built in Ephesus, massive, one of the seven wonders of the world. And under that roof, Between those columns, it was Vegas meets D.C. meets New York meets Los Angeles. Paul knew for them, and the Holy Spirit knows for us, that we don't stand a chance at living out the behaviors of chapters 4 through 6 without believing and being transformed by the blessings of chapters 1 through 3. In other words, we will not and we cannot live out what God commands until we first receive what God gives. If you want good old-fashioned religion, do better, try harder, ignore chapters 1 through 3, and only read chapters 4 through 6. But if you forsake receiving the gospel and coming to Christ and set your eyes on just trying to be a good, moral person, you have a problem of eternal proportions because a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Conversely, if you receive the gospel, if you put your faith in Jesus, if you receive all of the blessings Paul details in chapters 1 through 3, but that does not lead to the transformed life of chapters 4 through 6, you have an equal but opposite problem. For we are commanded, be doers of the word and not hearers only. In other words, God says over and over again that our identity was redeemed by Savior Jesus, and that should lead directly to our living for Lord Jesus. It is not one or the other. It is both and, one leading to the other. All grace and no transformation will leave you a lawless shipwreck. All do better, do better, try harder. With no grace, will bury you alive under constant failure. Christianity is not either or, it is both and. Saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, transformed to walk in the newness of that life. Now, I needed to spend a few minutes restating and reinforcing all of that because our scripture for today gets heavy. Paul speaks directly into the sexual immorality, impurity and idolatry of the Ephesian culture and that's where I'm going to spend my time today. This is the untouchable in our society and unfortunately in many of our churches today. So if I don't set bumpers on each side of the lane, identity on one side and behavior on the other, we will all end up in the gutter. But if I've done my job today, in faithful obedience to God's word, we will all leave here today called up into the gospel of glory. Again, our text today is Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 21. It will be on the screen if you want to join along using the Bible and the pew back in front of you. We're on page 949. The text on the screen and the translation I'm going to preach through today comes from the ESV, the English Standard Version. After reading this in its original language, the ESV simply captures it better. But here we go, Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 21. Paul writes, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place but instead let there be thanksgiving for you may be sure of this that everyone who is sexually immoral, impure, or covetous that is an idolater has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partners with them For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Amen. (coughs) Excuse me. Now, as I prayed about this passage, one single word played like a loop in my head, the word integrity. And I'll explain why as we go, but I want to hit on three points today as it pertains to what I will call Christian integrity. I want us to see the source of it, I want us to see the scope of it, and I want us to see the solution for it. Now I would venture to guess that you'd be hard pressed to find anyone in this room that does not want to live a life of integrity, but what does that mean? This word integrity, it's used in engineering, and construction, and manufacturing, but it's also used to describe the life of a person. It means undivided, uncorrupted, whole, complete, unified. And the more that integrity played on that loop in my mind, the clearer this picture became of what Paul, and more importantly, what God is calling us into. Earlier I said that if I gave you Ephesians with no chapters and verses, you would no doubt see the massive transition that Paul makes at the halfway point of the letter from being to doing. And this is it. Verse 4, chapter 1. This is what he writes. This is the transition. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. You were dead, made alive, adopted, predestined. You have hope. You have a glorious inheritance. You are God's masterpiece. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now live like it. This is a divine invitation and command we dare not refuse or ignore to integrate all that we are across all that we do. If we have an undivided, uncorrupted, complete, and unified identity in Christ, then Christian integrity means that identity flows through all we think, all we feel, all we say, and all we do. Here is what I know simply by the fact that we are on this side of heaven. Every single one of us right here, right now, is settling for a lack of Christian integrity somewhere in their life And I am not excluded from that. It might be to a higher degree with pride, or lust, or gossip, or bitterness, or greed, or sexuality. But here is what I also know. That if you open up your heart today, God in his grace will not only reveal it to you, but begin to heal it for you. So let's look at Christian integrity and let's start with what's point number one, the source. Where does it come from? Verses 1 and 2, Paul writes, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, I know that some translations say be followers of God, but the word there is mimos, which means to imitate or mimic or image. Remember, Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrews before he was a Christian, and in Hebrew thought and writing, to image or imitate pointed directly back to creation. We are made in God's what? Image. Image. And to image something, to image God is to exactly duplicate in form and in doing the original. You and I are not a collection of molecules with a sex drive born from lightning, randomly striking primordial soup. We were made by the divine creator with intention and purpose and the intentionality and the purpose from the very beginning was to bear God's image in his creation in constant relationship with him. It is how we were created. It is infused into our DNA. But one day in the garden, as we know, we decided that imitating him was no longer sufficient. We wanted to be him. And when Adam and Eve fell into sin, all of us and all within us did too. Our nature, our identity corrupted, thereby corrupting our actions and behavior. But this is true. God never asks us to do the miraculous. That's his job. That is way above our pay grade. So, the only way it makes any sense that Paul, writing under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, encourages us, commands us to imitate God, is if God Himself makes us, you know, I, I don't know, a new creation, fully equipped and fully empowered by the Holy Spirit within us. God Himself as creator and recreator, if you'd like of us as image bearers is the theological source of our integrity. It comes from him. Corrupted identity, corrupted living. Purified identity, purified living. By making us a new creation in Christ, God purified our identity. When he looks at you, all he sees is the perfection of his son. He is the source of our new identity. Therefore, he makes it possible to integrate that identity in every area of our life. And he's not just the theological source. He is the paternal and relational source. We are not to imitate God as mindless robots, void of emotion, or slaves serving a master in constant fear of the crack of the whip or subjects serving a monarch, which is just one-way loyalty. But Paul says, as beloved children, as more identity language, you are a beloved child of God. Beloved by the perfect Father, perfect in every single way, his love overflows, his grace abounds, his mercy is new every day, and God demonstrated his love for you in this way that while you were an enemy of God, Christ died for you. If you ever doubt that God loves you and wants what's best for you, just look at the cross of Christ. And Paul hits on that sacrificial love of Jesus in our second verse. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Think of that. Our salvation was utterly dependent on Jesus not being a savior in theory or in name only. Not just feeling like a savior, but living that identity out in reality who he is, a rescuer, a redeemer, leading him to have actual nails driven through his literal hands. No corruption, no distraction, undivided obedience to the will of the Father, even unto death, even death on a cross. God, your Father who loves you, is the source of this integrity in all areas of your life. The Holy Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, perfectly integrated as one for all of eternity. It is who he is. It is the new identity he's given us. And it is the life he's called us to lead. But it is impossible to imitate someone you don't know. This is why we press so hard into being rooted in Christ, constantly connected vertically in a living and loving relationship with our Father, being in His Word, hearing from Him. And this is why growing together is so important. The world will not encourage you to imitate God. It will encourage you to ignore God. Get into community with brothers and sisters who are growing in the Lord that you can be encouraged in your new identity and spurred on to good works. And if you don't know how to take that step, please reach out. Okay, God is the source for the integration of our Christian identity across all areas of our life. Let's take a look at point two, the scope of the integration. I'm going to read off a list of how we are to live as a new creation in Christ, and I'm only going to use chapter four in our scripture for today. We are called to integrate our new creation identity in each one of these ways. Be humble, gentle, truth-tellers, peacemakers, unified, growing in spiritual maturity, growing in faith, growing in knowledge of Jesus Christ, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, solid in our understanding of God's word, generous, put on the new self, new attitude of mind, no stealing, no corrupt talk, no rage, no anger, no brawling, no slander, no malice. Be kind, compassionate, be forgiving, no coarse joking, no greed, no drunkenness. Speak to one another in psalm and song from the Spirit. Yeah, any questions, right? When we allow the Holy Spirit to work in our lives, that is what he will produce in us and through us as we grow in our imitation of our Heavenly Father. And I don't know anyone that would honestly look at that list and not aspire to be the person who that describes. Every one of us looks at that list and accepts it and desires it actually without modification, until I add verse 3, verse 5, and verse 6. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness might not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Like I said earlier, this is perhaps the hottest button in our culture today. But I'm not talking to culture today. I'm talking to my brothers and sisters in Christ for whom he shed his blood and to whom I will give an account. I need to get doctrinal for a moment lest you think this does not apply to you. The doctrine of total depravity speaks to the biblical truth that every area of our lives is stained with sin. If I can summarize, nothing is as bad as it could be, but nothing is as holy as it was created. Every area of our lives is stained to some degree by our sin nature, which means every single one of us needs the gospel to shine its light on our sexuality. Every single one of us. Because this impacts us all, and it's so important to get right, I don't want you to hear from me. I want you to hear from Jesus himself on sexual immorality, impurity, and idolatry. And he tells us where the problem lies, how God defines marriage, and God's conclusion for sexuality based on that definition. Jesus said these words to a group of the religious elite who were questioning why Jesus' disciples ate without washing their hands, the thinking being that their hands are unclean Therefore, the food they touch is impure. And when they eat it, therefore, they become unholy. Jesus says to them, Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality. Theft, false witness, slander. The word that Paul uses in Ephesians 5 and that Jesus uses there for immorality is porneia, from which we derive our word for pornography. And it refers very simply to any kind of sexual activity outside of marriage. Yeah, but I'm straight. So, I mean, what if just me and my girlfriend, any kind? Oh, but the God I know, any kind. When Jesus says heart, cardia, he's not talking about the vessel that pumps blood. He refers to our soul, our identity, the vortex of our thoughts and our emotions and our desires. Notice the Pharisees. They think it's their behavior that defiles from the outside in, and Jesus says, no. No, the problem is from the inside out. And so the Pharisees decide to take it a step further and test Jesus on marriage. So they ask him point blank, can a man divorce his wife for any reason? Hard stop. I don't have time to cover this as I ought to, and for that I am sorry. I know several in this room have been hurt in marriage and through marriages, in marriages that have ended in divorce. God's desire in his heart is that you would find healing. He hears you, he sees you, he loves you. We fight for marriage. We spend hundreds of hours in premarital counseling and in marriage counseling. And although divorce grieves the heart of God, our Father, it is not the unpardonable sin. It is not. They ask him about divorce. Jesus defines marriage. And he does so as a covenant between one man and one woman. He says to them, which is ironic because these are the guys that memorized the Torah, the first five books of our Bible. And he says to this, have you not read? What he reads to them up here is on page two. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said... Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. When the disciples hear Jesus' standard of marriage, they recoil. They literally say to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. To which Jesus says, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuch for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Jesus does not say that everyone should be married but his only answer to not being married as it pertains to our sexuality is celibacy. Eunuchs were celibate celibate either because of complications at birth or willingly to serve in the court of an earthly king and not fall into sexual temptation as it relates to one of the women in the king's court. But notice this third group, people who made themselves celibate not to serve an earthly king but out of love and loyalty to a heavenly king. Now, the first time I ever heard Jesus' words on celibacy exposited, it was by a Christian apologist named Sam Alberry. Sam realized his same-sex attraction 30 years ago at age 14, but for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the integration of his faith across his entire life, By the power of the Holy Spirit, he has remained celibate his entire life. I have no idea what that feels like, and I won't even pretend to. But what Sam says is essentially this. When he gave his life to Christ, he knew that if he was going to live a life of integrity, his word, not mine, he had to lay down his sexual orientation for Jesus the one who laid down his life for him. More important to Sam than his sexual orientation was his spiritual identity. But more than Sam's story, I have my own. Believe me, I do not stand up here and preach this as a model of sexual purity. Ava, our oldest daughter, was born one month after Ashley and I were married. And if you need help with why that math matters, Pastor Mark Ray will be available in the fellowship hall after service. But where Satan would have me look at Ava and be overcome by my sin, the Holy Spirit overwhelms me with the redemptive and restorative power of the gospel of Jesus Christ because where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. What then? Shall we go on sinning? By no means. Jesus did not make my sin of sex before marriage okay. He took the stain of that sin and the penalty of it away when he made me a new creation with a new identity that is available to you and me. And the mark of Christian integrity in this area is not an endless struggle, but constant submission and surrender, giving up our battle and receiving Christ's victory. I had the true blessing of discussing this very issue with a couple who was living together unmarried but had plans to marry months later. I told them my story. I shared with them God's word. I heard their hearts. And at the end of it all, when faced with the choice of Christian integrity, they chose the covenant of marriage, and a week later, we married them before God. Who they are as beloved children drove that decision as Jesus Christ, not their sexual desires, became the center of their union. It is tempting to mistake a personal commitment with a covenantal relationship, but a personal commitment is an exchange of promises, whereas a covenantal relationship is an exchange of persons. The total giving of one to another. God didn't just promise our salvation. He achieved it through a new and everlasting covenant marked by the literal giving of his life through Jesus. In English, we have one word for love, and I use it to describe a golf course or my wife. But in Greek... They have up to seven with four primary. Agape, storge, phileo, and eros. Agape, the perfect love, the sacrificial love of our Heavenly Father. Storge, empathy, compassion, tenderness, vulnerability, lifelong covenant. Phileo, friendly, brotherly love. Eros, romantic intimacy. And the order matters. Culture pursues eros with the misplaced hope it will produce phileo and storge, but it never fulfills because at its core, it rejects the perfect, sacrificial, agape love of God. And when the eros disappears, the relationship is over. But marriage is God's institution with his agape love at the center, surrounded by empathy and compassion, and friendship and vulnerability and lifelong covenant. This is why the Eros is so fulfilling, because it manifests from the first three. And because the relationship centers on the perfect love of the Father and not on physical intimacy, it continues to go, grow stronger even when the physical ends. We look at these words of Paul in our text today and we hear these words of Jesus And it is tempting to think that God some way, somehow, is holding back from us. But how could that be when God gave us everything in giving his son? The joy of knowing the Lord far outweighs the cost of laying my sexuality down before him. Sam Alberry's words, not mine. Jesus was never married. He was never romantically involved, yet he offers us a relational intimacy this world doesn't know and cannot touch. If you are a Christian, by definition you trust Jesus with your salvation and therefore your death, it would seem inconceivable then not to trust him with your life, every single aspect of it. So what's the solution? How can we live this level of Christian integrity, our new creation identity, infused across and throughout all areas of our life? How can we practically turn struggle into surrender and experience the freedom that the gospel offers? I mentioned getting into God's word daily, hearing God's voice daily, getting into community with brothers and sisters who will not just talk the talk to you, but walk the walk with you. But If I'm preaching on sexual immorality, I might as well just go for broke here. But no, I do so in truth and love. The fastest way, because it's the most biblical way, to turn struggle into surrender and failure into freedom is to repent. Turn from your sin. Turn to your heavenly Father and be forgiven and cleansed. Each One of us has an area of our life that is not integrated with our new creation identity. Lust, pride, greed, envy, gossip, slander, idolatry, sexual impurity, addiction. Some of you need the Holy Spirit to illuminate what that is. Others of you know exactly what it is. And look at God's promise to us when we bring it to Him in repentant faith. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Faithful and just. God our Father is faithful to his beloved children even when we are not. And because of the shed blood of Jesus, if you are a new creation in Jesus Christ, it would be unjust for God to punish you. He does not wield the knife of a butcher, but the scalpel of a surgeon. Bring it to him, and be not only forgiven, but cleansed to walk in the newness of life. I'll close with this, and yes, I know I need to paint Alden's desk. This is the beginning of a bracelet that Alden made for me numerous strands held together by that single knot at the top. Now, when I look at this, I see a mess. I don't know what to do with it from there. There's different colors. Do they even go together? There's two strands on the side. There's three down the middle. There's one sort of in an S shape. But she took them and wove them into a beautiful pattern. When we hand every aspect of our life over to Jesus, And imitate our heavenly father as beloved children. He takes the strands of our life in his hands. And where we see brokenness and separation. Where we see that things don't match. He will integrate them into a beautiful pattern. For our benefit and for his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is the type of sermon that produces pin-drop silence. Not only in the hearers, but the speaker. Father, I need you to do a work in me. I need you to do a work in me to purify me. Continue the good work that you started. Your word says that you will, that you are not just the author of our faith, of our new identity. You are the perfecter of it. And so I know and I pray we know that where there is confusion, you will bring conviction. Where there is shame and guilt, you will bring healing. Father, where there is our will smashing up against yours, Father, would you bring freedom Speak to your children today. May they hear your words, turn to you, and be healed and be set free for our benefit and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.